Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest this week is Caroline Taylor, an art valuation expert. Caroline founded the Appraisal Bureau to bring data and analytics to the highly subjective world of art appraisals. We start the conversation with Caroline's backstory before talking about the appraisal process for both traditional fine art and NFTs. She explains the problem that Appraisal Bureau is solving in the space. We also cover several unique aspects of the art market, such as block trading, irrevocable bids, and the place of NFTs in the art world. Please enjoy this conversation with Caroline Taylor. So Caroline, the fact that Deutsche Bank, and when I say Deutsche Bank, I'm thinking of the Wall Street investment banking house that's usually in the headlines for credit risk or something, but Deutsche Bank has an art collection is surprising to me. Tell me about how or why Deutsche Bank has an art collection. It surprised me too until I became their curator or on their curatorial team. Deutsche Bank has a long history of collecting going back to the 1970s when one of the board members, Dr. Zapp, was a collector and he particularly had a close relationship with Joseph Boyce, who was an extremely important German artist. And the collection started out of bad interest, really, and putting artworks by German artists in the retail branches of the bank in Germany. And then one thing led to another. And by the time Deutsche was trading on the New York Stock Exchange, there was also a collection in the U.S., which ultimately led up to being, by the time I joined in 2009, the largest corporate art collection in the world with over 62,000 artworks. And my job was overseeing from Canada to Brazil and everything in between, everywhere the collection was. And so do you go to school for art? Have you always been in the art world? I went to school to be a painter. I grew up in Alabama and I moved to New York to be a painter. I went to Pratt Institute that's all I wanted to do, but then realizing I had to pay my rent somehow, and I'm going to strike it big as a painter fresh out of college. Actually, I never struck it big as a painter. I had to get a job. And by random chance, I had met the curator from Deutsche Bank, and she wrote me and asked if I wanted to come in for an interview. And I said, to do what? She said, well, work for the collection. I said, all right. So I go in for the interview, and we're sitting there, and I've I've got paint jammed in my fingernails all over my hands. And I said to her, this is all great, but I'm a painter. I just need something to pay my bills. She laughed and for some reason hired me. And then over the course of the next five years, the hardest decision I ever made was realizing I'm not going to be a professional artist and giving that up. Because for me, it was black and white. I can either keep being a painter and not doing anything market-wise or go to the other side. And I finally made the decision that it was time to stop painting. And that was that. And here I am. I can imagine that wasn't an easy thing, and maybe someday you'll find your way back to it. But you're curating. What does that entail exactly, curating a corporate collection? 
I was in New York, so covering the Americas, we had colleagues in Frankfurt and colleagues in London. We worked as a global team, but also regionally. We also had a committee of bankers that represented, in theory, all the different business lines of the bank. And, and we would present our quarterly that we wanted to buy. They would vote on it and it would become part of the collection or not. And about 97% of the collection was on view. We were hanging out on the trading floors and everywhere in between. Is the goal with a collection, when you're thinking about acquiring a piece, how much of any is return on investment of finding value versus diversifying some piece that you didn't have? Is this just a billionaire's playground to buy stuff that the people who are in charge like? Or is it we think there's value or we think that this makes sense and the type of collection? Like, What's the mission behind the stuff you're selecting? So I can't really speak to Deutsche anymore. I even left over a decade ago. But with any collector, it's what's your goal? That might be just buy what you love and live with it. And that's the best starting point there is. Because some art will appreciate and you can sell it for a lot more. And that's also a complicated situation because reselling art comes with a whole set of issues around it. It's not always the best thing to do. However, you also don't want to plow a lot of money into something that's going to go to zero. So you want to have that security. And so in my opinion, meeting it in between of knowing where your value sits And you also get to the point that your collection has material value, then you want to start thinking about things. Well, you might want to collateralize it. You might want to finance it in order to, for other acquisitions, that there's a lot of options out there, art finance sector that support creating incredible collections. But again, it comes down to the collector, the institution, whatever company may be behind the corporate collection of what the goals are. And that it's really important to lay that out and have that be very present throughout the collection. So you're at Deutsche Bank, you do the corporate art curation thing. Where did you go from there? I was 26 and I quit and I started my own company, which was, in hindsight, I can't believe I did that, but I did. I had people requesting that I work with them privately with their private portfolios, but there's an SEC regulation that as an employee of a bank, I couldn't advise on art because it's not regulated. Then I had enough kind of requests piling up that I left Deutsche did some independent curating work for private collectors, managing private portfolios. Along that way, I started hiring appraisers for my clients. And I was pretty shocked at what that process actually looked like. And myself coming from a background of, I've always been in art, but not only did I work in a bank, I come from a family of bankers. I've always been around finance. It just seems like there was a much more streamlined way to approach this because art is an asset and it needs to be protected. So I decided to become also an appraiser. That entails going through the training of the Appraisers Association of America, which took over a year. I became an accredited member. You have to always be USPAP compliant. This requires renewing your certification or your compliance every two years, a lot of ongoing education. So I did that. And the art markets, because there, like I said, there's no regulation. You can be an appraiser and an advisor as long as you wear the right hat at the right time. So I was both for quite some time. Over the years, I started seeing this hole that there was no just completely neutral valuation company that would never have any interest in sales or markets because even if you're on one side, you're fair and square doing evaluation. If you're also selling work by that artist, you have a different kind of interest. You can do both and there's disclosures you take, but I finally just decided that I wanted to go completely the opposite way and turn my company into being a data and analytics firm only. Around that time, so that was two and a half years ago. So I'd been an independent appraiser and then I founded an appraisal bureau as exactly that, a data and analytics-driven firm that offers valuations for art. And we'll get into the NFT and digital asset stuff in a bit. That came later. 
But that's what we are. That's the ethos of this company is being completely neutral and never have any interest. And because of that, we work with a lot of enterprise customers, major global companies. So I want to unpack the buying process because I'm fascinated by how the actual market it works. So when a high net worth or corporation hired you before the appraisal business got off the ground, where you were the advisor, in that case, how does the economics work? Are you paid on retainer to be an advisor? Are you paid a project fee to go get specific things? How does that part of the relationship work before we introduce appraisal? Advising has really only become a job over the last decade, and that's because of all the nuances and the opacity of the art markets. I don't recommend anyone who doesn't know the markets and the ins and outs of it to just go start buying art. You will get ripped off. You need an advisor now. That's just a symptom of where the markets are. So it really picked up as this booming industry about 10, 15 years ago, and it's grown from there. You don't need any certification or anything to be an advisor. A common phrase in the art world is your Gmail art advisor, someone who's artadvisor at gmail.com. They're everywhere. You can just show up and say your advisor. So there's a whole spectrum when you start to look at what that profession is. And there are some really, really good ones who give incredible guidance to their clients. And then there's the other end of that. Within that spectrum, there's every deal you can imagine in terms of how people are compensated, disclosures, all of that. Some of the bigger ones, it's retainer. And that's your major clients that acquire a lot of that advice. There's also working on commission, homework and commission. I've worked every which way when I was doing that business. But you'll see anything is the point. Okay. And so then as the advisor, let's just say you're being paid on a retainer to work for a large client and the client sets out what their mission is or what their goals are that you're working for. How are appraisals used in the rare art market? The appraisal report is a legal binding document that presents an opinion of value written by a qualified appraiser. And all of these terms are defined by the IRS. It's all governed by the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice, USPAP is what we say in the industry. And that is congressionally adopted, it's federally funded, and it's also governed by the Appraisal Foundation. And that is a set of standards and ethics that you must abide by when giving writing appraisal reports. And there's language within all those reports, which must be present, disclosures you must make, the end users look for you, your end users being insurers, lenders, the IRS, a multitude of other use cases. An appraisal document of one artwork or one NFT will start at a 20-page document when it comes from appraisal bureau. So we meet every single compliant measure you must take. We check every single box. When I think about it, if I hired five appraisers to give me five prices, and especially the more esoteric or one-off something is, when I think about valuing stuff, I can imagine that's a challenging problem, that people might come up with different values. Are appraisers rated? You're a top appraiser. How is one good at appraising? Appraisers Association of America, which is the highest regarded organization for professional appraisers, has levels. So associate, accredited, certified. I'm certified, but you become certified in a field. So I'm certified in post-war contemporary and emerging art specifically. And that's where the grand finale of getting that designation is a 10-hour exam from memory where you're hit from every angle on your topic and it culminates in 20 images that you must identify the artist and give a price from memory. Anything in any evening sale of any auction house in the last five years being fair game. So it's a tough test. And that's how you become certified in that field. But when it comes to the actual appraisal report, that's a great question because there is no rating scale. One issue is that there's no centralized source of data either. While public data is generally just secondary market auction data coming from Sotheby's Village Christie's, that represents maybe 30% of transactions in the market that we know of, but there's no other public reporting system 
So when you're hiring an appraiser, you don't know what kind of access they have to information on the primary market. That comes down to having relationships with galleries who will give you that data. And so when you're writing an appraisal report, you're looking at both markets, primary and secondary market, and depending on the type of value, whether it be fair market value, marketable cash value, retail placement value, fair value, whatever it is, you have a different combination of considerations between those two markets to arrive at a value. For instance, insurance, we are looking at if you own a painting and it burns up tomorrow, what would it cost the insurance company to replace it? Here we have to consider things like, does the artist have a wait list? Is there an axe? Is it accessible? The gallery might have 100 collectors on the wait list and great collectors waiting, and they're not going to sell another one to the insurance company, a second one for a collector who already got one. That's not the priority list. In which case, that insurance company may have to cover the cost of going to the secondary markets and paying the premium of auction in order to replace the artwork. So therefore, retail replacement value is often much higher than fair market value because you have to consider all those issues. I had one really interesting project, which is at Murals in Miami for a very important, basically, portfolio of works that are on a new building in Miami. They have a curatorial staff and important artists made these murals. And we had to think through things like if there was a hurricane, hit that building, destroyed that mural, would that artist fly down there and paint that again? What would it take to get her to do that? All these considerations have to go into that replacement value consideration. That's something much different than fair market value. Fair market value, we're generally looking at quantity of transactions. Where would you go in an open market, willing buyer, willing seller? What would you sell that for and what would someone pay for it? If under no stress of time or pressure or anything like that. So that's, again, a different number. Marketable cash value is what we consider often in collateral loans and divorces, equitable distribution cases. That's what cash are you left over or would you be left over with if the lender defaulted, if it's a divorcing couple, what were the costs involved? What are the carrying costs of owning? Let's deduct that. Then if they sell, how much cash are they left over with to split? So it's just completely different considerations with A, every type of value and B, every type of in use. So are there three values, the insurance value, the fair market value, and then the marketable less cash value? So there's many more. <laughs> there's retail replacement value is what insurance uses. And fair market value is probably the most common. The IRS is always going to look at fair market value. And there's marketable cash value, which is generally fair market value less the carrying cost or the cost of selling. We also will look at liquidation values. Retail value is a little bit different than retail replacement value. I often have to use block trades, which would be like a portfolio holding a lot of similar items. Then we're looking at what could the market hold tomorrow if these were all sold? How much could the market absorb? And this is very similar to securities. Actually, the first time I ever did a block trade, I called an old friend on Wall Street in the securities industry and I, I took him out to lunch and I said, tell me exactly how you do this with stocks. And I actually took all that and converted it into art. And that's how I created the exact process we use here for block trades. It's very similar to the securities industry. Wow. Is that a common thing, block trading? Is that like someone dies or there's a divorce or... It has to be split. Yeah. Or it may be, this comes down to repetition because it's like if you own a ton of shares of one company, you're looking at a block trade. If you own 50 similar paintings of an artist and you're going to put those into the markets tomorrow, the markets will not absorb that. So it, it comes down to that repetition. It can be common with if there were gallery partners that were splitting, which are situations I've also handled and they have all the inventory from just a few artists, but all the inventory. 
now we have to look at that from a market perspective of we can't sell all that tomorrow. It's not possible. So then you do the math backwards for how much do you deduct off that based on the current markets. I think for someone who's not buying rare art or going to the famous auction houses, but that's probably the thing I have in my mind. I don't know if that's the right framing of, I'm thinking about that pamphlet where they show the picture and they say appraised value between $300,000 and $500,000. Is that different than the type of appraisal you're talking about? Yeah. So if you see that from an auction house, that's an auction estimate. And the estimate is it's a strategic guide for bidding, basically, that the auction house is going to give. So you'll have a low estimate, a high estimate. You'll have a reserve, which is not publicly disclosed. That's the number. It's usually a notch or two below the low. And that's the seller saying, this is the lowest I'll go. If the reserve is not met, even if a bid comes in at an auction, it will pass because it doesn't hit reserve. Then you can get some funkier things like third-party guarantees. And there's a market for third-party guarantees where it used to be much more common before the uh, 2007. Or IBs are very common now, which is an irrevocable bid where a collector can say, I guarantee this bid to this amount. If the final bidding surpasses my bid, the seller or the owner of the IB and the house will split the spread. So then the owner of the IB will either walk away with the art at a great price or they'll make a little cash because they took the gamble, a bunch of things right there. Wait, let's back up because we were splitting bread. So now I'm interested. All right. So there's a piece of art and you say, I'm going to have an IB, which is a revocable bid. So what we would call a stocking horse bid or something, I'm going to bid up to a million dollars. Do they know your max or is that your starting bid? So when you're buying an IB, you would say my IB is a million dollars. The starting bid will be wherever it is, but the house has that bid up to that amount. So it'll keep bidding up to there. Now, if other bidders come in and they keep going above that and the thing sells for 1.5, there will be a deal worked out between the person who bought the IB and the house of what the split is of that spread. And that can vary. It's deal-based. That seems like such bullshit. Like It just seems like you're all excited. And so you don't realize that the auction house... So you go into the thing. I'm sure everyone else knows these dynamics. I'm the first one to learn them out. But you're sitting in there. Everyone's heart's beating. You're getting all hyped up. And you don't realize that they already had a bid in their hands. When they do like, oh, the guy on the phone or something, is that just the IB going back to give the auctioneer fun? You never know. And also, this is the reason advisors exist. Because advisors know this. And they know how to play this. And... It's complicated to navigate if you're not involved in the markets. Auction houses can also play chandelier bids. That was legalized, again, in New York City a couple of years ago. It was not legal for a while. Now it's back in. It was a post-pandemic thing that New York City wanted to help out the markets, I suppose. And even though they were fine during COVID, but the chandelier bidding became legal again. And that's the house actually bidding to move the bidding up. But they're not real bids. They are. They're registered as bids, but it's the auction house bidding on behalf of themselves. Wow. It feels like a manipulated market for sure. But let's go on the IB. What's interesting about that is, and this is where I love trying to cross over. If I was a value investor, I would just put low bid IBs on all these different things saying, look, if I get hit here, this is great. And if not, if this thing starts to run, then I have this option on the upside of getting profit for lending my capital. So is that just a whole separate business that people put in IBs as a strategy? You have to think about this too. If you win that piece buying an IB, you now own a piece of art that sold at an auction that didn't do that well. That's not really good for the long term. That has its own implications on the valuation, given that it was in that public auction, it didn't hit the high. So you better love it. It comes back to that. If you just love that art and you want it, you got a good deal. You're not going to be able to sell it publicly for a while again, because 
reintroducing things at auction is, is a different system. But the third-party guarantees have their own market too. Once upon a time, there was a third-party guarantee fund, but that's a different issue. So if the IP is a unique method to put these floor bids into the system, other unique ways that people bid besides the traditional, what I'm assuming is go into the room and see who else they're going against? But yeah, you can sit in a room with a paddle. I mean, few people do that anymore, but you can. When I used to bid, I liked to stand in the back of the room and be on the phone to the specialist. So you can watch the room while you're on the phone. No one knows you're bidding. And no one knows who this, you know, the specialist is bidding for. You can bid online. I know we're going to get into NFTs later, but this summer there was a very high profile auction that one certain work went very, very high. And the winner of the work, it's very public who it was, and, but he had someone bidding online. He had someone bidding on the phone. He had a person in the room on every single possible channel in order to guarantee that win. So there's a lot of methods to it. Are we talking about the goose? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was in the room. I was following it on Twitter. So for those who don't know, why don't you explain what the goose is and, and Dimitri and what collection and where it comes from? Dimitri Cherniak is a digital artist. So his work is what is called generative art. Generative art has become extremely popular in NFTs because basically, you know, a set of traits are defined and then an algorithm runs and creates these compositions based on chance of what's picked out of the static traits and creates this image that is then minted. It's an NFT. He created this collection called Ringers and there was one ringer that came out looking like a goose. The, the shapes are perfect and it's yellow. So it's the golden goose. It's an icon of the entire movement of all this. And it is quite cool, I have to say. And I really like the whole generative art movement. And it didn't start with NFTs, which is really important to think about. Generative art goes back for decades. Weave it all the way back in our history, really, to the Bauhaus. And look at it in weaving, Ani Aubers and her weavings. It's all about setting your traits and then you weave and there's chance. Then you get this outcome of a composition. And you can look at movements all the way up until today, it's generative art has existed for a very long time, just like computer art has, digital art has. NFTs are just another medium. It's tokenizing it and owning that digital file. Back to the goose. The goose was owned by Three Arrows Capital. Starry Night was their was their collection. As we all know, that Three Arrows Capital obviously crashed and there were all these assets. They collected some of the best digital art that's ever been made. It was an extraordinary collection. And it was a really interesting moment when they crashed because this was obviously the liquidation process had to start. Taneo was doing it. And what happens when art with no physical properties is being liquidated? What is the process? So it was really interesting to, on a firsthand basis to have watched that all play out and transferring the assets to Sotheby's who, who sold some of these works. They were very lucky to get that deal to be able to sell some of the greatest digital art that's been made so far. And it culminated in this auction in June in New York at Sotheby's. And I was there in the room. It was a packed house. It was a different crowd than is usually there, but it was high energy. It was a lot of fun, frankly. And the Golden Goose, it sold for over $6 million in the room that day. So it was a lot of fun to be there. I guess one thing I'm curious about with that is you've advised high net worth, ultra net worth families and the types of people that buy art. When this moment happened, it's kind of gets to the crossover of the different asset classes in general. How many people in that room were familiar faces from the art world versus new faces from the digital art world? Oh, it was a totally different crowd. That's one of the beauties of it is that 
digital art has attracted a completely different audience to the stage. And Sotheby's Christie's getting involved is an extraordinary step for the space because it's an auction just like any other auction, selling golden goose. But it was a completely different, very young crowd, a lot of the crypto digital native crowd. I might have known one or two people from the traditional art world. I think I'm one of the rare crossovers who's very active in both spaces. And so in that case, you were saying that they were bidding. Was it relevant that they were on the phone in the room and on the computer simultaneously? Is that odd? They wanted it. They really, really wanted it. It is rare to sit and be the bidder sitting in a room raising your paddle. Online sales have really changed that because there's so many other options and people just don't want to be seen being the bidder. So that's not a new notion, but I respect it. But there were so many people there making sure that sale happened. The buyer tweeted just after the goose is staying in Web3. So, and he was right. I think it's very public. Punk6529 was the buyer. I think when it was happening, no one was quite sure if he or his team had won. He tweeted right after. All right. So the goose has been sold and it's staying in Web3. But that begs the question, how did you get from the painter to the rare art collector? How did you end up in an auction for the golden goose? (laughs) That's a good question. And a long story with some twists. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, how I was saying I founded Appraisal Bureau almost two and a half years ago, summer 2021, to be a completely neutral valuation company. About a month later, I had a client donate a crypto punk to a museum. I was tasked with figuring out how to do the actual transfer because the policy of the museum was that anything they own in the collection has to be insured. I was trying to figure out how to get insurance on this thing because most people weren't touching that at the time. It's still a complicated space. It was much more complicated then. So I was living in London at the time, which the point to that is that the specie market's there. So that is part of the story. But I started calling everyone in the space, trying to figure out what offerings existed on NFT insurance. And I wasn't really comfortable with anything I was hearing. And then through a long story of lots of calls and a lot of randomness, I was introduced to the head of digital assets at one of the biggest insurance brokerages who introduced me to a bullion vaulting company. They are the most secure vault in the world. They store 70% of the world's diamonds, the majority of bullion for major banks. They had hired a crypto expert just a few months before that to just create solutions of how to store the stuff. So the solution they use is a BIP38 technology wallet. It's a physical card that has two encrypted codes on it and that are covered in tamper-proof seals. One must expose both codes, combine them to create a seed key. Therefore, if the seed key has never been created, the codes have not been exposed. There's no possible way anyone would have the seed key. The insurance market saw, specifically in the Lloyds markets, was that as long as those cards are in that bullion vault, which has never had a loss in I don't know, 60, 70 years, they were comfortable with giving specie market full liability insurance on those. So specie market is typically, it's a niche insurance market that covers high value assets while at rest generally. So gold, diamonds, art. The bullion vault had been already storing crypto in this way. They wanted to do NFTs, but the problem was that no one knew how to value them. So there I was, an appraiser for 12 years. I also have some background in non-tangible conceptual art, having worked at the Felix Gonzalez Swartz Foundation right before Deutsche Bank. I started looking into it and all just made sense to me. So I wrote a paper on how to value an NFT. Three-page paper. I went to Fiverr.com and hired a developer to do a little work for me. I had no tech background. I had no clue what I was getting into. And I said, I need to build this one little thing to make this all work. He built it. And... I presented the paper to the underwriter in the insurance markets. And after several months of going back and forth, negotiating with that, they approved it. So appraisal bureau became the only approved 
appraiser of NFTs and still is in the insurance markets. Again, at the time, I was just trying to move this punk. I had no interest in this becoming a professional thing. I didn't think it would be. I had no clue. And then New York Magazine wrote about it. <laughs> and that just like ignited. Then all of a sudden I was getting calls from all over the place. What I was doing was quite manual too. I am a professional appraiser. I write professional appraisal documents. I have all the traditional training and was meeting it with these new considerations that had to do with blockchain and digital assets. So the combination of all of that is really what worked. One thing led to another. It's now a very, very active business and I have built a lot more technology. We're in a completely different place now. I want to dive in on that a little bit, devaluing the punk. So because at this point, there's chats of just people that just trade punks. What people might not appreciate is whether you're trading muni bonds, corporates, treasuries, gold, commodities, there are people that just trade punks. And that's what they specialize in. I have a good friend who runs Deep NFT Value, AI engineer who had built just for trading. Now, this is very different. This is where I want to separate the line between it's so nuanced where if you have a crypto punk, you have this pixelated image, but if it has a cowboy hat with a clown nose, it's different than VR goggles. And there's all these combinations. And it's deeply liquid. And I love trying to value stuff like that. But for you coming from the art world, especially at this moment in time, it was the credentials of I have the ability to appraise. It really is the difference between a deep learning engine or a bunch of traders trying to figure out where the next trade is going to be. So how did you take apart a CryptoPunk from an appraisal lens? And how is that different from a trading or valuation of an asset like that? An appraisal is an opinion on value on a certain effective date for a defined purpose with a defined approach to value with all of these other things that I mentioned around the Uniform Standard Professional Appraisal Practice, you must a lot of considerations behind it, not to get too boring with all those details. A platform that's doing pricing, that is great, but it serves a completely different purpose. If you're a trader, you might want that. For me, you come to me for a much different purpose. I'm not giving you live feeds of value. I'm giving you defined. My new technology we're rolling out soon, it does have a feed, but it's a daily feed. And it's not lifetime, it's not on demand, because that's not the point. So we serve completely different purposes. And there are several platforms out there, and they're wonderful in what they do. But you're not going to get a, a regulatory compliant document to take to the IRS from that. That's where we come in. So that's where we separate. Is a regulatory compliant document for CryptoPunk talk about different traits and historical sales? Like I'm super curious. Oh, yeah. What? what? <laughs> My audit documents also talk about bids, offers. So it's for audit, we're writing under an ASDA 20 valuation, which is generally what you look at for a venture portfolio for equities, where you have to look at the market and say, what's available to the trader at that time? What are the exit opportunities? So it's just looking through that lens. I guess you'll just have to buy an appraisal report and see. So getting back to this point about the appraisals and the impetus and the problem that you were solving with appraisal bureau in general, first with physical art and now physical and digital art, was this notion that you thought the market lacked neutrality? What does it mean that you didn't think there was neutrality? Neutrality, I have no interest in where that value lands. I'm not invested in that market. I'm just watching it. And that's what also sets appraisal of your part also on the fine art side is that our institutional clients know that and our enterprise users know that, that you can always trust our document that it's never been influenced by some other kind of agenda or interest. And Steve, what's really curious about when you look at NFT valuations, just to go on a tangent here for a second, NFT valuations and fine art valuations is that I've obviously been in fine art for a really long time. NFTs are newer, but the way those the static traits are defined in NFT collections, 
I actually study that to inform my fine art side. So we have, we use AI in our evaluation engine on the fine art side to label and structure data to match what's happened on the NFT side. So there's this really interesting relationship between both of them, which continues to give us more and more neutrality because we're relying more and more on the machine, which takes the human out of it again, which deletes any option for any kind of, not that we even have it to start with, we're getting further away from being able to just sit down and slash a value. So when the machine controls it. Can you give me an example of that? What's an example of applying the traits that you see in an NFT to a piece of rare art? Yeah, so it depends on what kind of NFT. So for your PFP collections like CryptoPunks, you've got like zombies, they're rare, they trade higher, whatever the trait may be. So in our systems, for example, we've already collected and stored all of those traits. And then we have a proprietary algorithm that we wrote on Rarity Score as a feature in our machine learning models. However, Rarity Score does not matter as much as it once did. It's really decreased in its importance. Premium traits will matter. So like a board ape with gold fur, that's always got a premium on it. But the Rarity Score itself has far less importance than it did. But going back to fine art, an artist may make a series of artworks and they've made red ones, white ones, blue ones, but the red ones are just more desirable because people like them better. And so maybe they realize higher prices at auction. So the red actually holds higher value. Therefore, couldn't we now for that series take those static traits of red, blue, white, and then now we can do some feature correlation of looking at only the red ones. In a way, mimicking static traits of NFTs over to fine art, it's just what we're using AI to do is pre-process, structure, label the data, but then also image recognition models to identify what those traits are and record that for our engine. As someone who uses computers to price things, it can be very daunting at times to make sure you're thinking about all the different risks. Talk to me about the stuff that when you ran your algorithm, it broke and Caroline needed to step in and use your years of experience to say, this is the value of this piece. Oh, for NFTs? No, fine art. Yeah, so there are some things. So if we don't have trading activity for a very long time, we have that come up. There's so many different sub-markets within fine art. So there are some artists that they're extremely important in museums, but they just don't have that much commercial activity. And that could be because the artist is, it could be huge installations that are just hard to own. And so we don't have those data points that trading. That's when it takes different set of expertise to be able to study the importance of the institutional support, what museums is it in. Uh, let's look at the galleries, let's talk to all the galleries. So that takes a different skill set of a lot of training to be able to understand. I write a, a lot of these reports, particularly because I have appraisal bureau serves as evaluation partner to a company called Museum Exchange, which is a platform for matching museum donations. It was founded by former museum directors in order to be kind of a tender for donating art. Collectors can post art, museums pitch for it, it gets matched. You know, we do, we're the valuation partner, so we're writing those IRS documents. In that case, we're writing an argument in that document for the IRS to read to understand why does this thing have value? How do we back up that value? It's a persuasive essay. So that's a slightly different valuation than just running data points that it does fork off there. And so how, if at all, do you validate in this business? When the market gives you signal, is there a validation process? So let's say that one of your competitors says, we appraise this piece at a million and Appraisal Bureau was like, we're at 7 million. There's a significant difference in opinion. And then eight months later, it goes to auction and it sells for 8 million. Is there a validation process that you're better than other people? Like a track record of, I'm really good at this? Well, again, there's no scoring system of appraisers and you can hire five appraisers and get five totally different numbers. 
what you want to look into is what access to data did that person have? What involvement do they have in this market? How much reach do they have? Were they able to call up the gallery? Also, do they have possibly an agenda? Do they trade in that market themselves? Do they have a reason that it should be higher? In terms of validation, it's common you can do appraisal reviews. And I've done them myself and a client will say, I'm not sure about this appraisal. So an appraisal review can either be a review of the approach to value taken by the other appraiser and or does not actually issue a new value, but rather just reviews the steps taken and writes a report on was the process appropriate or the review can actually counter the value, which happens. That's really the only solution to that right now because the primary markets being how they are, that the data is not public, there's no centralized source to just go and check it. That is one thing that appraisal bureau is working to solve with our data warehouse that we have an enormous amount of data. We further trained our data using museum collections that are under the Creative Commons Zero license, they're public domain. So from, for example, from the Met alone, we have 2 million entries that we took that to further train our data. So what we're working towards is this engine that you could take an appraisal report, drag it and drop it into our system. The data extracts, it runs through our engine, and it can actually tag flags to where something's off of market without doing an appraisal. So this has obviously become very attractive to people that are taking financial risk against an appraisal just to be able to check it somehow. So long story short, the only answer I have to your question is what I'm building. No, anything else out there. No, that's great. What is the customer base? You talk about when someone has financial risk, but you've mentioned museums, you've mentioned corporate institutions, you've mentioned high net worth. Tell me about the different customer bases that request appraisals and how, what's the segmentation like for you? So a lot of our work sits on the business and enterprise side. So major corporate collections, lenders. So we work with institutional and bespoke lenders loaning money against our family offices. So often the bigger collections, when you get up into the tens of millions in value, you're going to need an insurance report. If it's contemporary, I recommend you update that every, every year, at least maybe every six months. So that's one set of value. Now, another one may be there may be a loan against those artworks and the value may have been determined by a team at a bank, but the person taking out the loan wants to counter that. So we'll do the whole suite of values around that. That's the core of our business. We have other clients too, B2C, that's people come to us for, they've donated one thing, they need just a quick appraisal, this or that. We will do that too. While we don't do any advising, we do have funds that come to us and they'll have us write an estimate basically of where we think fair market value sits. So it's a bidding cap basically. And they'll take that report, present it to their investment committee and say, we have a third party opinion on where fair market value sits and we're going to stop at the cap that appraisal bureau has given. And the investment committee will sign off on that. Then fund will then bid and go up to that amount. Yeah. Over the years, we've just taken on bigger and bigger clients and our forthcoming tech that we've been building for a year and a half it's a subscription basis. So rather than just event-driven single reports, you're actually subscribing your artworks, you get an annual value, and then you have on-demand reports for an IRS report or what other, other reason that may constitute an appraisal, your work is already subscribed. Right. So it's, it's just a faster, more efficient process for everybody. I've seen in a lot of industries where there's regulatory moat or some sort of body moat. In this case, you have the USOP or the people that give the accreditation can say what goes and what doesn't go. The idea of using artificial intelligence or using algorithms to do this is a concerning thing to the appraisal industry at large that you have humans that are probably make decent amounts of money from some of the wealthiest people and institutions in the world being told that 
instead of one person writing as many appraisals as they can per year, that I'm sure a computer could spit out a lot more of these. Does that dilute the appraisal process? Has there been pushback in your industry over using AI to do this type of work? That's a really good question. So when I say that we're using AI, just to back up for a second, we're using AI to pre-process and structured data. We don't use AI in the actual evaluation process because we need to keep logic we traceable. We can't. We don't want any hallucination there. That is problematic. Now, if you have AI telling you this is worth X, well, tell me why. That's what an appraisal does. Yeah, so I would push back personally on that too if you depend 100% for the machine to say the value. Now, what we do, again, like I said, it's the structuring of the data and the matching of the data that arrives to a value based on a traditional methodology that a human can review. It's problematic, in my opinion. And how many appraisals does appraisal bureau do per year? Thousands. But one appraisal may also have 1,200 works in it, which they often do on the NFT side. So we do a lot of work on the audit side of, for NFTs, and it's funds with thousands of NFTs. Yeah, we do a lot of work. And the report, again, maybe one simple artwork that's gone to a museum, or it may be 250 paintings with a loan against it. It's a whole range. If you can't disclose what you're working on, and you can't say who you're working with, how do you get business to appraisal bureau? Well, as far it's all been word of mouth. It's all incoming. So we've been really lucky in that sense. And it's a lot of repeat customers, high-level corporate customers, that it keeps growing. So I think we're extremely fortunate. And I'd like to hope that the work speaks for itself and what we do. I think one of the things that NFTs did is it brought a bunch of people that had no business in art. I went to Art Basel. I didn't know what Art Basel was. For you, that's a laughing matter. Hold on. First, let's say Basel, not Basel. Oh, whoops. See, I, exactly. I'm very uncultured. That's the first indication. You're not in the art world. Trust me, there's a lot of indications that are not fun. in the art world, but that's one of them. We like to say that about 99% of the people <laughs> going to Miami for the fair are say Art Basel. Yeah. <laughs> but it definitely brought a whole new world of really interesting people that I've met from art collectors, both on the digital and physical side. And you start to hear stuff, even in our little world, the, the MoMA is this thing. And where my worlds collide is there's lots of hedge fund managers, Alan Howard, and big, big collections where they're like, this is going to be in the MoMA. What happens if an NFT gets in the MoMA? And that was always this thing. And, and we're at a state where this has happened now. So what does it look like as NFTs start to permeate the traditional art world with places like MoMA? First off, there's also different kinds of NFTs. There are some NFTs that are just completely normalized as art that has a blockchain element and it happens to be tokenized, but is accepted as just another medium of art. And that's the healthiest thing that could happen. And a great example is the Rafik Anadol that's at MoMA. I assisted one of the co-donors of that to transfer that to the museum. And it's an AI-based NFT hanging on the wall of MoMA. That's the highest bar you can have. Don't quote me on that exactly, but I've heard it's one of the most viewed artworks ever at MoMA. Visibility being a lobby certainly helps. But that's a huge step for the industry, for digital art to be just normalized as digital art. It makes so much sense. And it makes so much sense that you would want to own your digital art by making it unique. And that's what an NFT is at the end of the day. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun, Caroline. So we're going to end with the cycles. Normally, I'm asking this about stocks, bonds, economy, but let's do it about fine art and NFT, and I'll even let you do too. Where are we in the making markets cycle? I would say with fine art, we're always just rolling off before you. <laughs> every, every auction cycle, it's a high. NFTs, we're rolling into hope. We'll get there. Definitely a dark moment, but it's certainly not gone. There's hope. Awesome. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.